holy is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain. Forever we will worship, we will sing, we will stand before you and proclaim that you are the Lord. And holy is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain. Forever we will worship, we will sing, we will stand before you and proclaim that you are the Lord. Come and celebrate, come and celebrate the name above all names. Lift up your voice and sing to our worthy King. Raise your hands up high for a sacrifice. Give a shout of praise, let our creation sing. And again, come and celebrate. Come and celebrate the name above all names. Lift up your voice and sing to a worthy King. Raise your hands up high for a sacrifice. Give a shout of praise. Let all creation sing. Oh, we sing. Holy is our Lamb, the Lamb that was slain. Forever we will worship, we will sing. We will stand before you and proclaim that you are the Lord. Oh, holy is our Lamb, the Lamb that was slain. Forever we will worship, we will sing. We will stand before you and proclaim that you are the Lord. of you that aren't standing, why don't you get up on your feet? Let's find somebody and tell them good morning. 
sin and sentence me to the grave. Desperate and weary, helpless for the rest of my days, until you came. And now I receive all that you've done. who sits over here and nods and smiles for most of the message. I, of all of the message. Sorry. <laughs> okay. But beyond that, I'm also here 
to take a few moments at the beginning of our service to invite the ladies, um, invite all of you ladies to join us on Tuesday, April 25th, got the date right, yes, Tuesday, April 25th, here at the church for a dinner. Um, we get to come together every week, and as Christians love to do and need to do, to be with each other, to walk through life together, to be encouraged by one another, to hear from the word, um, but also to walk through life together as a small community here in Lufkin. And we get to do that, and it's a privilege. And as we plan events, we also think about that for just the ladies to have that time as well. And specifically this time, we've decided to take time out. We have a theme called Finding God in Your Story. Every one of us has a story, <laughs> every one of us, and God is in the midst of it. If we are a child of God, he is there. A lot of us maybe don't always see it, but many of us do. And we can celebrate that together. So several of our ladies are going to be speaking, sharing how God has met them in their story, where they've seen God's hand. And if you're discouraged about that and you feel like you don't see God, please come out and celebrate with us and find that it, he, you know, re be reminded that he truly is there for you. Um, and also on the other side, all of us do have many stories. So I just want to encourage you ladies. We don't have many events together, and so I, what I wanted to do is just really encourage you, if you have the time, come on out, join us, let's all get together, and just celebrate together what God's done in our lives, what he's going to do, what he can do in and through us. So all the details are um, on a flyer in your worship guide, if you got one, and um, we'll be starting to sell tickets next week. Not yet, so there's no place to sign up yet, unless you would also like to be a table hostess. What we're going to do is have Y'all volunteer, whoever wants to. We'll have about, how many tables did we say, Sally? About 10, 15 tables? Or, okay. And so we need several ladies to um, volunteer. To You'll be in charge of decorating it. And there's more details out there. So today you can sign up for that. And then um, starting next week, you can get your tickets. And notice there is child care available too, so that won't keep you from coming. Thank you. Thanks, Jules. I appreciate how you introduced... Uh your response to my preaching, that helps a lot. I know that there's a lot of men sitting out there going, gosh, I want to be a table host at Julie's event. So having said that, the Saturday right after Julie's event, we're having a men's picnic uh, and hangout at Lake Sam Rayburn. Uh, there's an insert for both of these in your worship guide. If you want to open your worship guide, ladies, there's one in here that says Finding God in Your Story. That's for Julie's the event she just talked about. But there's also one called the Men's Hangout. Uh, we do this annually. Uh, Steve Hicks and their family uh, graciously allow us to use a lake house that they've got. And we, uh, we shoot skeet. We eat. Uh, Jeff Reich will be... Uh, catering for us, and uh, we spend a few hours just being together, and uh, we would encourage you to come join us, especially if you're new to the church and you want to get to know some other men. Um, the information is there. Uh, you don't, all you need to do is uh, at a table, there's a table out there to the right of the student table, and it's, uh, it's got some guy stuff on it. There's a, there's a sign-up sheet. If you just sign up, you can pay the 10. It's 10 bucks. That'll cover our lunch and everything. And uh, if when you, uh, when you are leaving, if you'll just sign your name on there, then we can plan on how many to feed. And, um, but it's going to be a great time. And if you have any questions about that, you can let us know. So uh, uh, event the same week, different days for both men and women. And uh, we, we do these events uh, so that we can build relationships with each other. Uh, it is not possible 
to come into this room, and, and the church has this a little bit wrong. This really isn't church. It's, it's, it's part of what we do. But the real stuff happens in our Bible studies and our smaller groups because it's really about relationships. Relationship with God, of course, first, and then our relationships with each other based upon our relationship with God. So we encourage you to be involved in these things, and if you have questions, ask and, uh, and, and jump in. Um, if you're, uh, hopefully your worship guide is open. Let me, let me highlight a few other things for you that you want to be aware of. As you know, in a couple of weeks, Palm Sunday will be here, and uh, we have our, our Easter, our resurrection season celebration. We're going to have a, uh, I'm going to be preaching on, on Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday, um, and uh, what the meaning of that, and then we have our Good Friday service this year on Good Friday. <laughs> that was, I, really, I really need to work on my humor more, but we have that at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, on Good Friday, and the reason we do it at 3 o'clock in the afternoon is because that's the general time that the shofar was blown. Uh, Jesus Christ gave up the ghost, and the Lamb uh, of God was slain for us. So that's a 30-minute service. I know some of you work. They don't, people don't, businesses don't give off Good Friday like they used to. Uh, but if you can sneak away for uh, 45 minutes, the service itself is 30 minutes. You'll come in here. There'll be communion. We'll have some songs. We'll read the story. There'll be a couple videos. But it's a very quiet, intensive time to think about, just to prepare your hearts uh, to reflect on that weekend, what happened on Good Friday. And then Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday is going to be phenomenal. Uh, the service itself will be about an hour and 15 minutes long. There is, uh, except for preschool, I think, is that, there's, there's just child care, uh, I'm sorry, nursery, child care that morning. But we want to fill this room and celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Uh, in the past, I haven't preached. I'm going to preach this year on the power of the resurrection. Looking forward to that. Uh, Chad and I have been working on that and will continue to. So we just encourage you to be a part of those celebrations. And uh, maybe you have family or friends that uh, you've been wanting to invite. Those will be good opportunities to do that as well. Um, I think that does it for the announcements. You can read your worship guide, call the office, or email us if you have any other questions. I want to remind you also in your worship guide is our prayer guide, or if you have the app on your phone, uh, be use of that, be praying for each other. I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time. A couple things about this. Uh, if you are visiting with us, we ask that you not give. This is for those of us who attend here on a regular basis. Uh, we are so glad you're here visiting this morning. We don't want you distracted by money. Uh, this morning we're starting uh, a, new, a New Testament letter. It's 2 Timothy. will be in chapter 1 this morning, and I'm going to get all the way for, through the first two verses today. So it's going to be a rather long message. Um, but uh, Oh, by the way, for those of you who emailed me, all of you, half the church, to let me know that I need to learn how to preach like Jeff Bonin because he got you out of here a quarter till, duly noted and ignored. Um, the other thing, uh, the only other thing is I, we want to um, uh, welcome Dan and Linda James and Connie Calloway into Carpenter's Way Church membership. Uh, they just joined. We've got a bunch of other families right now that are being interviewed. But uh, uh, for those of you who are wondering how to become members of Carpenter's Way, uh, we every quarter we have what we call Carpenter's Way 101 class. It's, it, it parallels Sunday morning times and basically go through. You meet all the leaders of the church. It goes through all the um, information on Carpenter's Way. And then at the end of that, you meet with an elder and just to answer any questions you may have. And that's, that's how you become a member. So um, anyway, we're excited to have these folks joining our church um, and thanks for being here this morning. If you're watching on Internet, it's great to have you as well. And we pray that God blesses you as you, uh, as you check all these things on Scripture out with us. So uh, get your Bibles ready. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and, and we're thankful that uh, you have called us together to encourage each other, to spur each other on to love and good deeds. And I thank you we can do that around the study of your word. 
We can do that around the worship that we'll be singing, uh, worship in music. Uh, we can do that as we worship you with our giving. Uh, we can do that as we sit around and, and eat hot dogs or eat a fine meal or fellowship around a table. That uh, the Spirit of God living within us, it says, uh, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's peace. And Lord, we need peace in this culture. Uh, people are hating on each other politically. They're hating on each other morally. And I thank you that the blood of Jesus Christ binds us into his family and gives us hope. Father, we need hope. And I pray for we as a church that we would be a hopeful people as we're here, as we go out into the community, as we talk to our neighbors and our family. May we be a people of hope. So this morning, Father, take our eyes off of the things of the world and put our eyes on you. And may the things of the world grow strangely dim. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, 
Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth, a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. When peace like a river attended my way 
When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my love thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well.
what you just sang what you prayed the song is still valid it's it's not just words we throw up there but we just told God that we want him to own our lives be enthroned you know we are um, like Pavlov's dogs remember that from psychology in college or high school uh, he would ring a bell and he trained his dogs to start salivating whether they ate or not you know we've been trained certain things in the church and one of those is that we don't commit ourselves we don't give ourselves back to god until the end of the service until the altar call and uh, boy we need to change that because god has some things he wants to say to us during the service beyond surrender he wants to talk to our hearts he wants to draw us to himself and you just saying be enthroned so i think it'd be really appropriate to take a moment and uh and just to pray for ourselves and and Take the words that you just sang, and, and, and look, I, I want you to understand that, that you can give yourselves to God in the midst of rebellion. If you know you're not where you need to be, uh, you can just say, God, be enthroned, and I'm mad about it. I'm frustrated. I'm scared. I'm hurting. You know, God knows. That's the thing about Jesus coming and living for 33 years. He gets it. He gets it. There's not a feeling, an emotion, a fear, a desire you have that Scripture tells us he didn't struggle with. And so if you're here this morning and you don't, you're a married couple and you don't have kids and you're hurting over, over, uh, over not having children, God gets that. Why? Because it says in Isaiah that Jesus had no offspring. It must have been a big deal to have it written in Scripture. Jesus wasn't married. Are you single and struggling? He wasn't married. And it, and it must have been a struggle for Jesus or it wouldn't be mentioned in Isaiah. You know, Jesus knows what it's like to have a turncoat on his elder team. He knows what that's like. He had a Judas. He knows what it's like to have his family think he's crazy. When they came to him that day, when they, when Jesus, when they dropped the guy uh, through the roof and he healed that man and says, your mother and your brothers are outside, Jesus said, who are my mothers and my brothers? It's these people in the room. Jesus knows what it's like to have them not like him. Jesus is mocked by his brothers. If you're that powerful, why don't you go into Jerusalem today in the Passover celebration and, and why don't you do some of that magic stuff you do? He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. The disciples were continually telling him he's doing it wrong. <laughs> He knows what it's like. There's no emotion you have this morning, no fear. He knows what it's like to lose a family member. His cousin John the baptizer died, and it so broke his heart, he went up into the mountain to be alone. He knows what it's like. Jesus had a best friend die, and he knew he was going to die, and he could have saved him. And he goes four days late to make sure everybody understood how dead Lazarus was before he raised him. But he wept. He knows what it's like to be doubted and misunderstood by that guy's sisters. He knows what it's like. So I don't know what stuff you brought in here this morning, what fears you have. I, I don't know. Maybe you're saying, well, I was diagnosed with cancer this week. Jesus doesn't know that. Nobody knew the night before that he was about to be arrested and killed. I'm not sure there's that difference. Death is death. And he knew that, and he prayed that his father would remove that from him. 
He knew what it was like not to have enough money. It says that Jesus said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He gets it. He gets it. He knows what it's like to have too many taxes and not enough money. So he called up a fish. He knows what it's like. So I'm just going to give you a second to talk to the Lord, and, and if you're his child this morning, you just tell him, I'm struggling, but I want you to be enthroned. Beyond my feelings, I want you to own this. Let's pray. I want to ask that you'll pray for me this morning because these are not my words. This is, this is the Word of God, and it matters what is said about the Word of God. So will you pray for me that I'll speak clearly and eloquently and won't roll out of the pocket and distract from what God wants to say? I want to pray you to pray for the people around you now, that they would hear the voice of the Lord in their hearts. Lord Jesus, this isn't a religion, it's a personal relationship with the living God who sent his son to die for us. We as your children have been inhabited by the Holy Spirit who wants to, who wants to just like he raised you from the dead, wants to raise us from our spiritual deadness and transform us. Father, life is scary, ministry is scarier. Serving you in this world, being misunderstood, but you promised to empower us and to strengthen us. So, Father, in our fears and in our trials and in our celebrations, we say be enthroned. Be enthroned in our life. Be enthroned in this service. And I pray that the words of Mark will fade away so that the words of God will endure forever. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Paul's missionary journeys went from around 48 A.D. I'm going to throw some numbers out, so I want you to get your mind around this. Jesus Christ died right around 33 A.D., we believe. So it's about 10, 15 years later that Paul's ministry begins. Around 48 A.D., and his missionary journeys, three of them, last until 56 A.D. That's eight years. From 56 A.D., to around 60 A.D., four years, Paul was then making his way through Roman courts around the region, not in Rome at this time, but around the region through the judicial system, finally arriving in Rome in 61 A.D. for two years, where he's held loosely under house arrest for which he was released after that. For the next five years, that's from, from 62 A.D. until 70, or 67 A.D., pretty much Paul traveled freely, and it was during that time that Paul would write the first, or would send Timothy to pastor First Church in Ephesus that had fallen apart and self-destructed since Paul's missionary journeys there. It was around 67 AD that Paul was arrested again and while in prison, this time aware that he would not be released this side of heaven, he writes the final two of his letters to, in the New Testament, the letter of Titus and 2 Timothy after which Paul is killed by having his head removed. History tells us. So I want you to understand that all of Paul's missionary or, or ministry experience, his official ministry, is purely a 20-year period. It's not long. You know, when most of the New Testament is written by Paul and we read his letters to find out, you get this feeling that it's this hundreds of years of ministry and it's not. 
This is where the book of Acts, the reading in the book of Acts is so important. You got to understand that, that Paul may have written much of the New Testament doctrine for us to understand as re- revealed to him through Jesus Christ. But the truth is, he's just a small part of what God did in the world. Paul's ministry life was anything but easy those 20 years. From the world's point of view, Paul was anything but prosperous. Yet, listen to how he viewed his life experience according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean. Live clean, innocent lives as the children of God, shining like bright lives in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Let me just add to this. Don't be surprised at how the world lives. It hasn't been different in 2,000 years. They're crooked and perverse, those who don't know God. Verse 16, hold firmly to the word of life then. On the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. I want to add to that. He's like, come on, be faithful because I poured a lot into you and I don't want in the end it to be useless. But listen to the next line, verse 17. Look at this. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life. Pause. He's not just talking about rejoicing in his death. He is actually countering what he just said. Even if you choose not to, even if my ministry is a failure, even if I die, which as we all know in human speak is the worst thing that can happen to a person. Even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like you're faithful, uh, but I will, he will rejoice. I, I, this, this is the same kind of statement that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said as they stood before Nebuchadnezzar, who said, what God can save you from my hands, boys? And these 13, 14, 15-year-old boys look at him and said, our God, sir, is able to keep us from your hands, O Nebuchadnezzar. But even if he chooses not to, we will not bow. In the mind of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was unthinkable to bow to anyone but Jehovah. It was thinkable to die for not bowing, but it was unthinkable to bow. That was not an option for him, for them. And Paul is saying the same thing. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. The New Testament times were difficult times for our family, much like the times this last year has been for the family of God. Paul isn't uh, writing these letters from a beautiful office overlooking a glorious campus of some large church in Rome, as is often perceived. He's writing these these words in Philippians from a, a jail cell that's four feet high and six feet wide that's only light during the day is a hole in the ground with grates across it so he can't escape. He's writing this word from prison cells, small rooms, and as he runs for his life from place to place, telling people that God sent his son into the world to save sinners. And even many within the church hated Paul and wanted him dead or silenced. In the church. Why? Because they were hurt. Paul was responsible for the arrests and the death of many in their families and in their churches, and they had not forgiven him. Paul's enemies were not just the enemies of the cross, they were the enemies of Paul at times. If you recall from a few weeks back, Paul ended his first letter to young Timothy by warning him about demonic teachings that were beginning to creep into the church, specifically in Ephesus at the time, uh, and, and these false teachers are arising. And in 1 Timothy 6, 5, Paul says this about those teachers, 
These, have, these people have turned their backs on the truth to them. And pay attention to this last line because it's significant. A show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. That's a demonic teaching, Paul says. That's what these false teachers were teaching. And I, and I want you to get your minds around it. And I don't want you to think, oh, that's, that's health and wealth doctrine only. It, it is talking about riches, but wealth is also life success. It is, it is a, a way to succeed in life, a way to get what you want, a way to be self-actualized is to actually live godly. That was being taught while Paul is enduring life-threatening hardships for the kingdom and calling us to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. That's Romans 12.1. Offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, not the ultimate, you only live once message that we hear all over the place today. False teachers had actually begun to take hold in the young church and preach that godliness is a way to get what you want. A good marriage, great kids, a good job. If you're faithful, God will return that to you. That was being taught. And this life presents itself as the ultimate self-centered pyramid scheme where you give something to God and he gives you everything what you want. After all, a good dad would want you happy, right? It fits our flesh, but it doesn't fit scripture. A great dad sent his son to die so that we could have eternal life. Well, that's an exception. That's the Trinity. It's God giving his son. God killed Jesus so you didn't have to be killed. And that's what good dads do. And if he's willing to sacrifice his son's earthly life for us, we have to also believe that his character is willing to sacrifice our life for his causes. Let me say that again. If he's willing to sacrifice Jesus for you, he's willing to sacrifice you for someone else. Because it ain't about this, no matter what Facebook says. There is no, YOLO's a lie. The reality is that when this life is over, then we get our promises, then we get our inheritance. We have been sealed now into what's about to come. The best comes 30 seconds after death. And we just struggle with that. And the flesh struggles with that. So this was a lie that, was, that began to be propagated back in the New Testament church and took root, and many left the church over that teaching, and it still takes root today. While Paul writes second, uh, Titus and 2 Timothy, he is about to be killed. And most theological historians believe that he knew it. We will talk more on that as we work through this letter together, but this morning I want us to get our bearings for this new letter as we embark today on simply looking together at Paul's introduction to the second letter, the first two verses, because it says a lot. It says a lot. These are usually verses that we just read real quick as we're getting into a letter. We want to get to the theology, but if one thing you'll learn about Paul's introductions is all but one of them have a real uh, view on what he's about to teach. Let, let's look at that. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I have, sent out, I I have been sent out to tell others about the life he has promised through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 2. I am writing to Timothy, my dear son. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. This introduction may seem simple enough, but boy, is it loaded with important stuff as you, as you, as you look at the rest of the letter. Paul takes the first sentence, um, for instance, look at this, 2 Timothy 1, verse 1, the first part. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. 
The very beginning. Let me try to help you grasp that if you were living in the New Testament in the context and culture of what's going on in this church in Ephesus, of what they heard. Hey everybody, it's me, Paul. I'm actually writing to Timothy today. Everything I'm experiencing right now in imprisonment has been foreknown, chosen by God for my life. Especially my calling as one he has chose to send out with the message of Jesus Messiah. As you may or may not be aware, Paul was the foremost missionary of his time for the message of forgiveness and adoption into God's family through faith in Christ alone. In other words, everybody or almost everybody knew who Paul was in the New Testament church. Why? Because they themselves had either been ministered to by Paul, led to Christ by Paul, or had been led to Christ and discipled by somebody that Paul had ministered to. It is arguable that Paul had single-handedly presented the gospel as God called him. This isn't completely true, but it's predominantly true. Paul had almost single-handedly taken the gospel from Jerusalem into the Gentile world, and oftentimes Jewish Christians struggled with him about it. I refer you back to, uh, to uh, Acts chapter 21 and 22, where the Christian Jews are really struggling with Gentiles being saved without becoming Jewish. Paul single-handedly was responsible for people being saved in Ephesus in Corinth, in the Galatian churches. When I say single-handedly, I'm not saying he's the Savior. I'm simply saying he's the one who was called out to do that. So they were all fully aware of Paul. And they not only knew of his success and his message, but they also knew of the things that he was going to. They also knew that he was in prison. For the previous eight years of writing this letter we begin today, Christians throughout the world had begged Paul to avoid Jerusalem and Rome. Read Acts. They begged him not to go. They begged him in the name of God, even claiming to have visions from the Lord that he was not to go back to Jerusalem or he would be arrested, taken to Rome, and killed. These people, especially the elders in Ephesus, loved Paul and their hearts were broken for him and worried. So these words are incredibly important to his readers when he says, this letter's from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. L let me take you a different place. Most of us live to live. Our worldview is to live. Our decisions are made on what is best for us, our family, or our businesses. Our decisions, our decisions predominantly help us to propagate our dreams. We are fully committed, not just to living, but succeeding in this life at all costs, because we believe that if we live godly, that God will reward us for that with at least health and happiness. The problem is, that's not how Paul lived. Paul actually lived to die. Paul lived to die to his own definition of success for the sake of the kingdom, to even his own flesh, if that's what was asked of him, for the purpose of establishing a kingdom that God had asked him to propagate. He was chosen for this, and he considered it an honor to live and be arrested and even die for the king and for his work. Listen to him talk about this during his period of arrest, not the final one where he's killed the last two years, but his previous arrest in Rome. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. The reason he says whatever happens, he's not talking to them. Man, I, I got to just, just a side note here, and we're going to see this more and more as we get through the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy. But I want you to understand that many of the verses that you have printed on doilies or put on your wall or, or you write down and you put in your car, many of them aren't written for the purpose for which you think they're written. When Paul says, for instance, whatever happens, he's saying, I know you're worried they're going to kill me. 
I know you're, never, you're worried you're never going to see me again. He's saying, whatever happens to me, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. We have turned so much into our self-centered uh, doctrinal and theological worldview, and I want you to understand that this is dangerous. The verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, was not written for high school cheer teams so that they could encourage each other when they lose. Or a football player who on, during hell week has to run 10 miles. It wasn't written for that. It was written to understand that I will accomplish everything wants me to accomplish through the power of Christ Jesus alone. And Satan, please understand that the enemy wants to take the truths of Scripture for those of us who believe it's final authority, and he wants to twist it and turn it so that they become kind of psychobabble with a verse and a twist and a fish on it so we can feel better about our circumstances. The reason we feel better about our circumstances should not be because your mind has been manipulated, but because your hope is in God. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Do you see the danger of that? When the church begins to encourage you using scripture in a fleshly way, it ceases to be God's truth. It may make you feel better, but it has nothing to do with God. I don't care how many good-hearted people say 2 Chronicles 7, 14 is for the United States of America. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked way, I will hear from heaven and heal their land. I don't care how many times we say it to each other, how many church, uh, churches put it on their billboards, how many nice little placards go out. That is written to the nation of Israel at the dedication of the temple because God told them, you're going to turn your back on me. And they said, no, we won't. And he said, yes, yes, you will. But here's the good news. When you do and you realize the punishment for that, if my people, the nation of Israel, will hear from heaven, will understand their sinfulness, turn from their wicked ways and cry out to me, I will hear from heaven and I will heal your land. That is not America. Well, it's still a Bible verse. Yeah, so as Judas went out and hanged himself, but you shouldn't obey that. We, we have to have a consistent view of how we handle Scripture, or it just becomes poetry. And you know, I'm not a poetic guy. I know some of you love poetry. That's great. But all of the sonnets in the world about love don't make a single girl married. We like to lie to ourselves. I'm here to tell you this morning, and Paul was here to say to them that real hope is available. Real, genuine, honest, God-given hope empowered by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the power that resurrected him is available to a man on his last day dying of cancer. To a woman who has left her husband with kids and no job. Hope is available, but it is not available through the misquotings of Scripture and the things that make people feel good about themselves, because feeling better doesn't feed the kitty. Truth does. And Paul is genuinely worried that these people are missing the point. So in Philippians chapter 3, he wants to share with the Philippian believers that he loves, that are freaking out that he's not going to be with them much longer, how to look at this. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on Christ, what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure blood citizen of Israel and even a member of the tribe of Benjamin. 
I'm a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I'm a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest, strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for, for, for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ, and I become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I became right, become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Now listen to this. This is, this is the linchpin. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him sharing in his death so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead my goodness that should rock our world when we think about Easter coming you know for us and, and this is our culture and, and I'm not I'm not banging on us because I'm with you in this this is convicting for me as I'm studying this week but I want you to understand that for most of us in this room for most Christians in this culture for most of us in Christendom it's about eggs or ham or, or family or about a story that gets us out of hell into heaven. We celebrate it. That's good. Paul wants to experience the resurrection. And there is a difference. One observes what God has done and has done on your behalf. And one wants to participate in the experience of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. More on that Easter Sunday. Because there's a simple verse that we don't talk about very much, and we're going to hit Easter Sunday. And that is the same power that resurrected Christ lives in you. The resurrection, yeah, was a one-time event in Jesus Christ's physical life, but it is an ongoing source of nuclear power inside of you that transforms. And we've turned transformation in the church as part of the process by which you get what you want out of this life. You want a good life? Be righteous. Well, you know what? For Paul, being obedient to God cost him his head, and you still can't live without your head. Um, for those of you who are interested in this sort of thing, they just said this year, in December of 2017, they're actually going to do a head transplant on a body somewhere in Europe. That's, that was for Daryl Douglas, who likes this sort of thing. <laughs> you know, which person are you going to have? Is it the body that's going, or is it going to be the head? What if they put a, a chick's head on a dude's body? I, I know it won't matter anymore in this culture, but I'm simply telling you, I'm talking, I'm, I'm telling you that our hope is found in the Lord. Because really, 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 if you've watched somebody transition from this life into the next, you are fully aware that it ain't about the skin. When you go to a funeral, you can't afford as a child of God to believe your eyes. Because they are not dead. Their body is dead. But their soul is, is gone. It was D.L. Moody, forgive me for re-quoting this, but it's just a phenomenal quote. But when interviewed by the Sun-Times in Chicago that his heart was failing and that he was going to die and he had a Bible Institute in Chicago and he had ministries that were international and all these things, they said, what's going to happen when D.L. Moody is dead? And he said, don't, uh, you know, I know you're wondering about that. Well, don't even worry about my ministries. And by the way, when it comes to my death, don't worry about my death. For after I have died, I will actually be more alive than I have ever been before. The problem 
with, that we struggle with, that the New Testament church struggles with, the problem that we battle with that is addressed in these first two verses is that you and I are still living to live. We, we still think that success is found on this side of eternity. And Paul is saying, no, it's not. Don't believe your eyes. Our hope goes beyond the grave. It is easy to look at this and say, this guy's nuts. Did he have a death wish or did he understand something? And maybe it's explained in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Maybe these weren't cute verses that we tell each other, but he actually believed that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in us and was given to us by God. You don't belong to yourself. God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. What if that verse wasn't about smoking like I was taught as a child? What if that verse wasn't about taking care of the temple? What if it was actually helping me to understand that not only should I take care of the temple, but the temple isn't mine. It's God's. So I should be willing to give up the temple now and into eternity for the work of the king, even into martyrdom. Or worse, having to live out your tasks in difficulty. Let, let me be clear. When we say martyrdom, it's like the ultimate bad word for Christians. Ah, oh, the ultimate cost. I actually think there's a greater cost. And that's living for him. If you're the mom of a three-year-old, it's your mission field. You're right, that kid's a jerk. Tantrums, disrespectful, you brought them into the world, you should have the right to take them out. I agree with you. <laughs> Unless there's a higher calling. And that is to raise a young man of God then it changes the parenting equation. Man, if that little girl of you's calling in life that you're raising is more than to be a great cheerleader or a pom-pom squad or a beautiful young lady, but actually to be a woman of God, it changes the equation with which you raise her. How she looks, how much money she makes, how popular she is, even to the point of how we celebrate our children. To be clear, a kid who pays 50 bucks to play t-ball, who's on a losing team, does not deserve a trophy. He lost. This culture wants everybody to be a winner, and I'm here to tell you that there are no winners outside of a relationship with God. I know some of you are going, oh, that's not very nice. I know it's not nice, but I'm talking about eternal things here. You don't win by being a good church. You win by being a spirit-controlled church. You don't win by taking your family to church. You win by surrendering control of your life to God. You don't win by getting to heaven. You win by having lived for the purposes of the kingdom before you got there. You still get heaven. See, that, that's another confusion. Let me, let me keep going. Paul, when he is addressing the people in Corinth that I just told, that he just told, your body is not yours, it's been purchased. And when he writes to Timothy... And it's tough words he's going to tell them. And he writes to the church in Philippi, and, he, and he's trying to encourage them. He's not writing to a religious group he's trying to develop. He, it was personal with Paul between he and God, and he wants them to join him in his walk with the King of Kings. We have a problem. We have begun to believe one of Satan's most powerful lies in our flesh, and it's not a new lie. We believe that godliness or Christianity or righteous living or moral living is a way to become wealthy, happy, or successful. And, and Jesus said that although salvation was free, discipleship or fulfilling our task is not free. 
Look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. You're familiar with this because I throw it at you all the time. But Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, by God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for it. It is a gift from God. Salvation, salvation, going from death to life, being promised eternity, becoming a joint heir with Christ. It's not a reward for the good things you've done. So no one can boast about it. However, we are now God's masterpiece as his children. There's a big however between those two verses. Now that you've been saved freely and by his grace, we are God's masterpiece. That's not about how pretty you are when you don't feel attractive. It's about why you have value, and that's because God has retooled you for his purposes. You are now his masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. In other words, now that you've been saved freely through grace, there's more to the equation. Now, the dad, our daddy, the dad of dads, the king of kings, lord of lords, judge of judges, he now says, look, now that I've brought you into my family, I've got work for you to do in the family business. Well, I didn't sign up for that. That's because you were lied to when you got saved. You see, this has less to do with heaven and hell than it does adoption. I, I get it. I'm not saying you're not saved if that's the only reason you got saved. That's fine. But I'm here to tell you that there will be no joy and there will be no hope and there will be no, no peace with God as long as you live for yourself in the name of Jesus. Please reference that car with the fish on it that drives 900 miles an hour past you on the freeway. As you drive by and they've smashed into a pole and there's nothing left of that car, please understand that they were not surrendered to God. Yeah, but they're Christian. You're right. There's two different things, though. We're talking about a country that has 80-some percent that claim to be children of God who are living like hell. You want to know the problem with our country? It's not Washington, D.C. It's the people that send those people to Washington, D.C. And let me be clear. Hollywood is not the problem. It doesn't create culture. It reflects it. You know why? Because Hollywood is about making money. And somebody's paying to see Fifty Shades of Grey. And unfortunately, I happen to be friends with a lot of you on the internet, and you exposed yourself. I'm sorry, but there's a point at which we have to decide if we really believe this or not. Well, I have to, I believe it. I'm going to heaven when I die because of Jesus. That's right, but do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that you are his property? Do you believe that he has a task for you in this life? Well, yeah, then get about it. But there ain't no way you can do it without his help without the power that resurrected Christ working in you. The church can't help you. There are not three steps to being great in God's kingdom. There's one. Enthrone him. Enthrone him. Because the task for you is great. And the cost is greater. You will not survive this. I'm sorry somebody told you you would. You were lied to. We have been left here on this planet to give it up, not to keep it. And nobody, including me, wants to give it up. It's hard. That's why we don't like to talk about it. That's why after Jesus said, if anybody wants to be my disciple, he's going to pick up, have to pick up his cross and follow me and put his selfish ambition aside. That's why Peter came up to Jesus and said, you know, you're discouraging the crowds. Really? And because of that, he proclaimed that to everybody. I'm sorry you misunderstood. 
You guys thought this was about food. It's not about food. It's about giving up your life for me. Can you imagine what Peter thought? Uh, that's, that's not what I meant, Jesus. That's, <laughs> you went the wrong way with that. No, Peter. You're looking at it wrong. I didn't come to build the nation of Israel. I came to build the kingdom of God. And Peter, before it costs you your life, it's going to cost me mine. You going to follow him, Peter? No. Why not, Peter? Where else am I going to find eternal life? That's the right answer. You didn't learn that on your own. The Holy Spirit taught you that. Hey, Peter, then shut up and follow me. I don't want to shut up and follow you, Peter. Then scream out that you don't want to be my disciple three times in public. Go ahead, Peter. I will never leave you, Peter. I've got a task for your life. You see, family, the question isn't whether or not God has a task for your life as his child. The question is, when will you realize it? When will you give your life for that task? When will you stop living to live and live to die? For Peter, it wasn't until after Jesus died. For Joseph of Arimathea, it wasn't until after Jesus died. He was called a secret disciple. Why? Didn't want anybody to know. John tells us that many of the religious leaders actually secretly followed Jesus, but because they didn't want to be thrown out of the synagogue, they refused to be public about it. That's a problem. Sounds like a lot of Christians I know. We are God's masterpiece. We've been created anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. One of the major points missing of the Easter discussion is forgiveness from sin and, and promised inheritance is a free gift, but that the Holy Spirit's power, the resurrected Christ, has been placed within us now in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that empowers us to accomplish the task that he's planned for us. This is not a religious movement. This is not the growth of an organization called Carpenter's Way Church. This is the growth of the kingdom of God as empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is personal between you and I and God. It is personal, and until we are willing to give up our dreams, our desires, pick up our cross and follow him, we will continually struggle with why I get cancer when I'm living faithfully for the king. Because we keep thinking that God promised us that if we're good, if we're Christian, if we vote right, God will reward us with a smooth life. And I'm here to tell you, that doesn't re reveal itself anywhere in Scripture. In fact, last time I looked, it, it stunk that Mary was the mother of Jesus. It really, really stunk. She had a dream for her life. She was going to be somebody's wife, giving that person children, live out her days as a good little Jewish girl. And one day an angel met with her and said, you are favored among women. Well, thanks for that, God. It stunk to be the mother of God. She had to watch her boy be slaughtered through lies. That's what it looks like to be God in God's service. Wow, you're not very encouraging. I'm incredibly encouraging because I got news for you. At the end of your life, it is not the end. It's the end of the beginning. We just don't believe that yet. We're still trying, just in case we don't really have it right, we're still trying to have it good there and good here, which is why Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.1, this letter's from Paul. You all know me. I've been chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I have been sent out to tell others about the life he has promised through faith in Christ. And in their brains, they're realizing that's why he's in jail. We're afraid he's going to be killed. He seems to be okay with it. Paul is saying, I want you to know that I haven't lost my hope or my calling. I'm just in a different location. 
And when it's done, I'll go home. Paul knew his task. He was sent out by God's choosing and will to tell others about the life he had through faith in Christ. Do you know your task? If I were to go around this morning and I were to ask you, why has God called you to do so? What has he called you to do in this life? Most of us would go, be a good mom, um, be a good employee, um, vote well, because we don't know. Let me tell you again. Let me show you from Paul what your task is. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. Since we believe that Christ died for all, do we believe that? Except for a couple crazy Calvinists in this room, we believe Jesus died for all. And two of you just said yes. The rest of you, Applebee's. <laughs> Seriously, do you believe that Christ died for all? Yes. Then follow this. We also believe that we have died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. Do you know what that means? No matter where their pants are, no matter how high their car jumps, no matter how many times they cut you off in traffic, or how they talk, or what language they are, or whether or not they're doing America legally, we stop evaluating people from a human point of view. No longer living, I lost my place. <laughs> I love it, I'll do this. So we've stopped evaluating people Others, from a human point of view, at one, I'm not good at this job, if you're visiting, just so you know. <laughs> at one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how differently we know him now. Keep going. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. So all of you should be going, what's this new life? You've heard this too much, though, so we don't ask that. All of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. All of what? Not just your task, but your salvation. Everything's been given to you as a gift. And God has given us now this, this task of reconciling people to himself. There's the answer. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. Bam, there you go. You don't have to go to Africa or Turkey you don't have to go to Hawaii, sorry. It's in your place of business, in your veterinary clinic, in your classroom, in your diesel mechanics room. When people come in and are freaking out as a doctor, your job, you may finance it by those things, but your real task is telling people that they can be reconciled to God. If you own a cake company, and a gay couple wants you to make a cake. You have an obligation. Whether or not you choose to make the cake for them is up to your moral compass, but you still have an obligation to tell them that their sins can be forgiven. Well, I don't like gays. At least you've acknowledged that you're not walking with God. That's not a luxury. At the beginning of this text, it says it's Christ's love that compels us. Well, I don't like people of that color. Nobody said you had to like them. You were told that you have to love them because God loves you. You see, this isn't about stopping racism. This is about looking beyond race and building the kingdom that God wants to build. So all of a sudden, as we focus on God's plan and task, we no longer look at people's color or their cars or how they jump or how they treat us. We look at souls. That's our task. And we look for opportunity. Not the souls of people across the country or people across the world, but the people in your sphere of influence. The people that God brings into your life. 
we had missionaries come share with us uh, a few months ago. And one of the things that really struck my wife and I is how the, the wife was talking about this is a difficult circumstance in which they live. And she talked about how they keep coming into her home, the women, while the men are all working, they come into her home and how tiring that can be. That's a task. That's your mission. It's tiring trying to raise kids on top of it, but that is a task. And they're doing it well. What about us? I don't like my neighbors. That's not part of the equation. They don't like you either. The question isn't whether we like people. The question is whether or not we understand our task. Because we are not here just to tell people we like about hope. We are to tell people we don't like about Jesus. You're not the Savior. Thank God. Tell them about it. That's our message. That's our task. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead. Come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be an offering for our sin so that we can be made, with God, made right with God through Christ Jesus. There you go. That's your task. Who will do it? Or is this just about staying out of hell? By the way, that's where Satan wants it to stay. Who will do it? Who will rise up? Who among us will say, I will give my life, my reputation. I will give, I will risk my time off for the king. Who will do that with Paul? Have we fallen in love with Jesus or are we just glad we're not going to hell? It's more personal than destiny. It's about life. We have been retooled for God's task for our lives. Will we accept our task? Will we accept our task? And by the way, Paul is fully aware that this would be difficult, specifically on Timothy, which is why he wrote 1 Timothy 2.2 immediately after 1 Timothy 1.2. Immediately after, I keep saying two. This is why he wrote 1 Timothy 1-2 immediately following 1-1. Look at this. I am writing to Timothy, my dear son. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. Do you know why he prayed that? Well, uh, it's just a nice way to say, what's up, boys? The reason he wrote this to them, to him, is because he would need all three to finish his task. The grace of God for strength. The mercy of God to endure and to get forgiveness himself when he didn't like the people he was supposed to serve. And the peace of God when he continually faced people who were lying about the truth. That's it. That's the truth. It's all over the New Testament. To avoid what I just taught you this morning, you have to pick and choose verses. You joined a war, and you have an enemy. And his goal is not to hurt you, it's to sting your daddy. And what's the most effective tool in hurting a daddy? Hurting his kid. This is our task. And let me be clear. My flesh wants a church of 52000 and everybody giving $10,000 a month. My heart would rather worship with 10 people completely surrendered to the Lord. If Jesus Christ could change the world with 11 faithful men who really struggle, what could he do with 1,000 of us? 
for 500 of us. Or five of us who say, my God's able to sustain me. But even if he chooses not to, I will not bow. And this isn't just for people over the age of 30. This is for those of you who are 13. You are being lied to every day and told that you've got to feel good about yourself. You're going to get in trouble with that thinking. Because Satan's going to keep raising the ante to get you to do stuff that will make you feel good about you. Church, we don't exist to do stuff that make us feel good about ourselves. We exist to burn out on kingdom work. And we should die tired. Father, I thank you for the men and women who serve across the globe, struggling with the same selfish inclinations that we have. And yet will get on a plane and go to a place where they don't like the people necessarily, or the food, or the culture, and spend days upon days and weeks upon weeks and years upon years serving you simply so they have the opportunity to tell people that they can be saved. And then we make them beg for money. God, reward their hearts. Strengthen them. Visit with them. Send your spirit to lift them up. But I believe that our task here in East Texas is much more difficult than that. It may not be as scary, but it's twice as deceptive. When you face the enemy daily, you realize that you're in a war. But we have been taught to believe that we live in the Bible Belt. That everybody who goes to church here are Christians, and that's a lie. Only those who have the Holy Spirit living within them are truly your children. And I pray that in this community, your children will rise up and give their lives for the King. I pray, Father, that we would be an army of hope and peace even as we die. May we sacrifice ourselves for your plan and our children for your work. Raise up out of this church young men and young women of God who will serve you full-time, occupationally, and in the work world. Men and women who understand that though they may be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a mechanic, that that is their occupation, but their work is kingdom work. May we raise young men and women who are more passionate, Father, for the work of the king than beauty of life and themselves. Father God, we need you. We need your Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us. We need to hear from you, and I beg of you today to speak to our hearts and change the way we parent, we live, we work, we play. Change the way we see the lost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to start in about 10 minutes.